Hey everyone, back again. Today I'm going to start Jacques Derrida's Of Grammatology. Now I'm going to do this in two parts. So, because the book is divided into two parts. So today I'm going to cover the first half or the first part, writing before the letter. And then next week I'm going to cover nature, culture, and writing. So that's why, <laughs> that's why it's two parts. Also, last week I released uh, an episode on Rousseau's On the Origin of Languages, which Derrida takes up a lot in this text and I think is pretty important to know. And also, if you didn't see, I released a video explaining what deconstruction is, which would help you a lot with this as well, even though as I go through this I'm going to explain deconstruction more or less throughout the whole text. I won't give a kind of exposition into it at the very beginning because that would take too long. Now, before jumping into it, you can find me uh, at Instagram if you wanted, at theory underscore and underscore philosophy if you wanted to see mostly pictures of my cats. If you're listening to this on YouTube, you can find it in podcast form pretty much anywhere where you get podcasts where there shouldn't be any ads and, you know, it's just more convenient that way. Uh, if you're listening to this in podcast form, you can find the YouTube version where there are videos if, if you're into that. And then if you want to help me out, obviously like, sharing, subscribing. If you're listening to this in podcast form, leave five stars, review. I would love to hear anything you had to say. Or if you want to help out monetarily, you can do that via Patreon or PayPal, which the links for that will be in the description. And yeah, that's more or less it. So let, let's just jump right into this because I don't want to waste any more of your time with the first half, writing before the letter. Now, I guess what I want to do first is to tell you what Derrida is doing with this whole book so that you have an idea with everything that I mentioned going forward what the goal is. And the goal for Derrida, in the most simple terms I can say, is to demonstrate that speaking is just another form of writing, which might seem strange right now, but it, it'll unfold throughout the course of the text. But the reason that he wants to explain that's, that that's the case, that he wants to say that speaking is just another form of writing, is because for him, the history of philosophy, specifically the history of metaphysics, which I'll get into, so we'll just put that on the back burner for now, has been dominated by an appreciation of speaking over writing, where writing has been viewed as a kind of uh, supplement to the real thing of communication that is speech. Now, the reason that there has been a privileging of speech has been because speaking has been associated more closely with thought because it happens internally and it can only happen with other people immediately present. So therefore, there is a more, I guess, fidelitous, fidelitous, a more, a stronger connection between two different people speaking that can foster a sense of, you know, community and understanding that words, written words cannot. So it is for that reason there's been this privileging of speech, and Derrida wants to completely undo that. Or well, he wants to demonstrate that speaking is only in itself a representation like writing, or at least how writing has been constructed in the Western imagination. Now he does this, he undoes this binary between speaking and writing with deconstruction, which just briefly, deconstruction is the process of demonstrating that a binary opposition isn't actually uh, real, so to speak. Rather, each element, each side of the binary is contingent upon the other and their construction as a binary follows a specific logic that serves the end not only of privileging one side of the binary, but privileging the logic of binarism of binaries 
themselves. So he begins the whole book with what is what he calls an exergue, uh, with three ideas about writing and speech that he wants to present to kind of set the stage for this idea that speech is privileged to writing. And here, here they are. Number one, the one who will shine in the science of writing will shine like the sun, a scribe. O Samus, sun god, by, by your light you scan the totality of lands as if they were cuneiform signs. Okay, number two. These three ways of writing correspond almost exactly to three different stages according to which one can consider men gathered in a nation. The depicting of objects is appropriate to a savage people, signs of words and of propositions to a barbaric people, and the alphabet to a civilized people. And then finally, number three, alphabetic script is in itself and for itself the most intelligent. So this, you might be hearing this and think, well, it seems like the alphabet writing is privileged in this history of philosophy. These are words from uh, Rousseau and, and Hegel. So you might be thinking, well, David, what the, what do you want about th saying that speech is privileged to writing? Derrida gives us these examples to demonstrate that within a general appreciation of speech is found the very evidence for the opposite, for the reversal of that very argument in a declaration that writing is of the most advanced forms, that is, in relation to civilization. But he draws attention to the fact that their emphasis is not on writing, period, but on a very specific form of writing. Take the words of Rousseau, which were number two, where the alphabet is associated with a certain civilized way of life, as opposed to, regrettably, the barbaric or the savage, at least those are the terms we have, and Hegel says the same thing. The, the sentiment is echoed that the alphabetic form of writing is the highest form. Now this, for Derrida, is evidence of a general appreciation of what he calls the metaphysics of phonetic writing. In other words, it is the idea that phonetic writing, because uh, phonemes relate a sound to a specific letter in a kind of one-to-one -one relationship, have therefore a closer attachment to the you know reality i will say to the world to nature and therefore to god but logocentrism isn't content with just embracing that logocentrism is the idea uh, or i guess it borrows from the greek with with this, which is an emphasis on uh, speech truth law that all relates back to the word of god or gods. Now, Michel Foucault's the, the fourth volume of the history of sexuality takes up this problem in a much more direct way, dealing with um, the work of Clément, I guess the medieval scholar, religious person, who Foucault says believed the Logos to be essentially the word of God. So hence this kind of appreciation of the word of God. Now, I haven't done that text here because it hasn't been translated yet. Uh, but when that, whenever that gets translated and you get to read it, you'll see that uh, Foucault gives us another explanation of this idea of the logos being that appreciation of the word of God. Now, phonetic writing is the closest that comes to that. Now, with that being said, phonetic writing is hardly appreciated. It is hardly embraced as something that is purely the demonstration of God's word. It is a representation of it, and it is the best kind of form we have. 
So within this kind of appreciation of so-called civilized life is not only a recognition of a move away from the natural world, which would, you know, just be closer to God by virtue of its so-called naturality, but it is also a return to that God, a return to that nature, which Derrida is very suspicious about. And Derrida is like, well, how can it be both? How can you say that it's like a return or appreciation of it unless you are also demonstrating that the first forms of writing were in themselves uh, just representations, connections to God in the same way? Now, this might all seem very overwhelming, and I, I want to reassure you that that's okay. And over the course of this, it will become more and more clear because he gives us more and more examples, and it'll, it will build. We're going to build here. So ultimately, what this book is, seeks to do is to develop or ask, really, if there is such a thing as a science of writing, grammatology, which would demand that there is an adoption of a certain logocentric form, which has often been associated with science, which Nietzsche traces to uh, Socrates, of course, and Plato. Derrida is asking if that can be used to understand not only speech as a thing that relates to God, but whether or not such a logocentric formula can be used to understand writing, which would necessarily undermine the very foundations of logocentrism as associated primarily with speech. So for Derrida, it is the matter of undoing from within. It's not about coming from outside of a binary system. It is working within it to demonstrate its limitations and to demonstrate the extent to which the two sides of any given component are in fact predicated on one another and are not nearly as separated as we like to think. And that puts us here into chapter one, the end of the book and the beginning of writing. So he uses the beginning of this chapter to kind of set the tone at the time he was writing. So this is in the late 60s in, in France, where it seems like everyone has a stake in language, at least considering language philosophically through, through, through whatever uh, means, where, and this is all happening through writing, of course, at the time, it seems to demonstrate a kind of free-floating nature of signification moving away from specific zones. And we hear this kind of sentiment, sediment, sentiment echoed by people like, of course, um, Baudillard and, and Deleuze and uh, Walter Benjamin even. We see a moving away from privileged sites into a more, dare I say, egalitarian or democratic regime. Now, I want to clarify something because I think this is something that people get wrong in that they read in Derrida an effort to understand a transformation that is happening in the mid-20th century when in fact everything that he's saying about the deconstruction of speech and, and writing, at least that binary, has always been the case, but it hasn't necessarily played out in a way as it is playing out in the mid-20th century when he was writing here. So that's an important distinction to make and to kind of keep on the back burner because the last thing we want to do is to say that, oh, wow, finally, writing has been emancipated from the shackles, uh, from the clutches of speech. When in fact, Derrida is trying to say that no, speech only exists because writing exists. Another way to put it would be like, the only way we know what warmth is, is because we know what cold is. So it's not as though either side of a binary can exist on its own. They actually 
are born at the same moment. But in any case, he's describing a situation in which signification is not purely tied to a thing that it signifies. So, for semiotics, this is the idea that there is a signifier, which is the word, like the word tree, T-R-E-E, is meant to signify the thing in the world. That, that thing that grows out of the ground that we look outside the window if, you know, we're not in a city, I guess, and we can see the tree. Now we have a signifier that represents that tree. Now Derrida is saying that the signifier in that dynamic was tied, tethered to the thing in the world, the signified, the tree in the world. Now he's saying that signifiers seem to have a life of their own. They seem to be free-floating, not necessarily attached to the signified, the thing in the world, what he'll also call a transcendental signified, but, but we'll get into that. And what Derrida will come to emphasize is that this very idea of the signifier and the signified, which is meant to evoke in us the idea that there is a kind of real thing in the world, and to which the sign or not the sign, the signifier, the thing that represents it, is the artificial thing, Derrida wants to say that the signified itself, the thing in the world that exists underneath the signifier, is only itself a kind of writing. It is only itself part of the text, so to speak. Which you might be saying, well, oh, that's bullshit, because how does that make any sense? It exists in the world. Well, this is how I like to imagine it. Where if we have the word tree... That stands in for an image in our heads because we don't walk around uh, before we engage in conversation with like a, a pocketbook full of images of things to have a conversation where if I wanted to talk about tree, the thing in the world, I have like a picture of a tree that I could show someone. I have the word tree. Now, when we use the word tree, what we are doing is homogenizing what a tree can be. So I use the word tree, and the image that comes up in my mind is going to be different from the image in your mind, the idea of a tree. I might think of, um, I don't know, a spruce tree. You might think of an oak tree. Like, I don't know. Whatever, whatever you think of will probably be different from mine. And with that, what we are seeing is the fact that the signified, that image that pops up in our head that we immediately attach to a thing in the world, is itself a construction. It does not exist really in the world. So that signifier and that signified isn't, or the relationship between a signifier and a signified is not uh, an abstraction to a reality. It is an abstraction to another abstraction. Now this idea that there's a so-called real world beneath an artificial world has in his word produced the idea of the world, the idea of world origin, that arises from the difference between the worldly and the non-worldly, the outside and the inside, or in other words, between the signified and the signifier, the signified being the inside, the origin of the signifier, the outside. So a writing is coextensive with a kind of structure, at least in the semiotic world, where writing seems to be uh, to, to abide by a structure as per structuralism, as per, you know, the philosophy of Noam Chomsky or, or whoever else that belongs to that field, would acknowledge that every single language follows in a structure. Because if there wasn't one, we couldn't communicate at all. There are rules that we tacitly assume and we tacitly adopt. Otherwise, we wouldn't be able to communicate at all. Now, what this shows is that th the signifier 
isn't really arbitrary. So semioticians have often said, you know, the signifier is arbitrary. That is, anything could have stood in for the real thing in the world, like tree. Instead of T-R-E-E -E representing the thing in the world tree, I could have used the word table, right? Or I could have used the word lamp or, or anything else to stand in for that tree. Now Derrida says, well, is that really true? Is it really true that anything we could have used would just correspond to the real thing in the world if we just all agreed upon it? Derrida's like, no, because what that assumes is that that thing in the world has a kind of homogenous identity, as though that thing in the world is not always up for contention. So there's a moment in, I believe it's in Balt, so Roland Balt, when he's describing a child frolicking in the grass. And Balt asks, how many shades of green does this child see? Now for the adult, we only see one. We look at the grass and we, we know it's green. You know, we've been socialized in such a way as to see only green. But for the un, I guess, unsocialized eye, there are myriad other colors going on within the grass that we often just don't think of, that we, you know, are told to kind of put away out of our mind. So the signifier as a thing that represents a thing in the world is contingent upon that thing in the world being subject to an ordering that allows it to be signified with a signifier. So the only way we are able to say that the grass is green is because we have homogenized what grass is and what it can look like. But we don't, like, we no one would disagree with that, that the grass is green. And I'm not saying we should disagree with it, but we should recognize that this so-called thing in the world, the real signified, is subject to a kind of ordering that we often ignore when we say that it is the signifier that is arbitrary, that it is the signifier that is culturally determined, whereas the signified is real, when in fact they are both subject to an ordering principle that, as we will see, is often associated with a kind of culturing, associated with a kind of uh, so-called society you know, or social formation. So the signified is as much determined by the signifier, at least how it relates to a kind of ordering system, to a kind of structure, as the signifier is determined by the signified. They are attached. And the very logic of semiotics and linguistics that speaks of the signifier-signified relationship is speaking to a specific movement in history that is one that belongs to logocentrism, this idea that there is a kind of truth or ordering to the world in accordance to a kind of natural law, which instills the idea of the ordering being natural. Now, such a distinction between the signifier and the signified dovetails with another distinction in Western you know, tradition, and that is the distinction between the sensible and the intelligible. So the sensible being something that we experience with our bodies, like we sense something, uh, you know, experience, anything like that, that is often subordinated to intelligibility. That is something that we can think or rationale or ration, rationality, sorry, which is, is just a way by which the sensible is subordinated to say that, oh, it's just a bodily thing that doesn't actually have any connection to uh, you know, rationality or reason 
but is something that just kind of happens to us passively. And he associates the sensible with the signifier and the, the intelligible with the signified, the intelligible being the thing underneath immediate experience, what we are kind of wrapped up in within language. So the, the association of speech with presence, what he calls you know the origin of a kind of metaphysics of presence, obviously has a very long history. So one way to understand this is with um, Plato's Pharmacon, which Derrida writes about in Dissemination, I believe, which I hope to do on here maybe this year. I don't know. At some point, I'll, I'll probably do that text on here, where Derrida talks about Plato's imagining writing or viewing writing as a precursor to the loss of memory. Because Plato says, if you write something down, you will no longer need your mind to, you know, recall certain facts or ideas or something. You will be content simply with having it written somewhere and you can forget about it. And that will result in a kind of a loss of uh, potential, I don't know, cognitive potential. But of course, at the time, Plato, and Derrida doesn't really talk about this, but I find this to be one of the easiest ways to understand this. At the time, the thought of capturing a voice in like a recording was in uh, in fa unfathomable, infathomable. What's wrong with me? Uh, it couldn't be imagined, right? So think today, where right now I am recording my words for you to hear. How is that any different from me writing down my words and putting them up on a blog? Really, it demonstrates the fact to which words, spoken words, are essentially the same thing as written words. And our acknowledgement of this is afforded by the technologies that we have. So historically, that is all the way back to Plato, and even the pre-Socratic Greeks, so the, the Greek philosophers that came before Plato and before Socrates, sorry, all the way up to Heidegger, uh, what we see according to Derrida is an appreciation of the capacity to speak over the capacity to write. How within speaking, there is just a tacit acknowledgement of one's superior capacity. And this is because the speaker is viewed as a kind of, kind of a godlike person in their giving uh, life to words only through their own thoughts. So internally, that is. There is a direct attachment between their thinking and their speaking that directly connects to a person listening. So there's then a more, uh, a stronger welding between the two that can give the, the meaning of their speech, uh, I guess, a stronger foundational character and that can open themselves up to newness and development. Whereas if I write something to someone, I don't know if the writing, if my writing is going to be interpreted in the way that I wanted it to be interpreted. There's always the possibility it will be misinterpreted. And as we'll see going forward in this text, that many thinkers like Levi-Strauss and uh, Feldenand de Saussure, in, um, who, who he obviously takes up here, were thinking about the ways that writing actually kind of perverts language, where if we are confronted with writing, two people can look at a word and because they don't hear it, they just see it, they might pronounce it differently. And therefore, what we see is a kind of broken telephone, a kind of distortion of real language with writing.
it moves us away from the truth of what is said and therefore moves us away from the thought and therefore moves us away from God. Now, all this still demands some qualification because in Plato, there's a distinction that he makes between good and bad writing, which if you haven't read it, you know, just it's not totally important. But for Plato, there's the kind of writing that is uh, universal, that is therefore closer to a kind of natural law, to God, to the idea, to form. And th there's another kind of writing that is specific, which is bad writing, uh, which is to say that the truth of the first is in its metaphoric nature, that is in its capacity to directly mirror the universality of the world. Whereas in the second, it, it takes into a kind of, a kind of uh, specificity, right? It was only the writing of a single person and therefore couldn't actually be um, extrapolate, extrapolated from to speak the truth of God or of a natural law. And so this bad writing, which is often associated with the written word, and Derrida throughout the text says like, writing in like the most basic sense, like I, me writing words on a page is dead writing. Whereas writing that, you know, is resembling more like speech or is the representation of the world is closer to God, is closer to truth. And we see this extend all the way through the Middle Ages, all the way up to uh, Rousseau, who we're going to take, take up in a lot more detail in the second part, so next week. Now, I worry that the, I might not be as clear as I could be about this distinction between good and bad writing. So at the time, thinking about Plato... There was an idea that the that nature and the world could almost be read like a book. And that book, that specific natural book, was actually a peek into God's order. And therefore, it was a reading, which automatically implies a writing, because a reading and writing are two sides of the same coin. You cannot write without reading, and you can't read without writing. What we see there is an appreciation of a certain kind of writing, as opposed to the human-made uh, writing of, of words. So he calls the human-made writing, at least to study it, grammatology, studying what it necessarily means, as opposed to what he calls pneumatology, which is essentially the study of the existence of the Holy Spirit within this primary writing, this kind of primary reading as well of the natural world. But if you were, if you were sharp, you'd say, well, didn't Plato write? Didn't all these figures write? And all of these figures from Plato to Heidegger did write, but they all kind of gravitate around the one person who didn't write, and that was Socrates. And he holds, he, he is like kind of the poster child of this idea of logocentrism because of his refusal to write and to remain purely within the realm of speech, purely then therefore within the realm of God, closer to God or gods for the Greeks. So these people wrote to essentially pay homage to the original non-writer. And this is where we get the kind of name of this chapter here as the end of the book and the beginning of writing, where they saw themselves to be almost writing the book as God wrote uh, nature, nature's law, nature's book that was being read as a kind of good, good form of writing, intelligible writing. They see themselves in their writing not as moving away from the world in terms of uh, the written word, like being something that is detached from the world. Instead, they saw themselves using only a direct representation of the world in their 
minimal use of language in accordance with very strict principles to stay confined to that very world that they were essentially paying homage to from, from Socrates. Now, we get challenges to this all throughout uh, the course of this, this history here, but specifically Derrida pays attention to Nietzsche, who was the fo foremost figure to challenge this appreciation of presence through, through language, a kind of appreciation of a certain kind of speaking, um, where Nietzsche attached as much value to writing as to speaking. And he is effective in his existing and writing within the framework to essentially undo it. Because Nietzsche was borrowing from that same tradition to undo it, to, in a sense, deconstruct it, to demonstrate the limits of the binary. And then we see a kind of revitalization of an idea of the signified, appreciation of the signified, with Heidegger. But Heidegger is like at least, he kind of acknowledges it, where within Heidegger, the word being, which stands in for this transcendental signified, which I'll explain in a moment, which stands in for a transcendental signified, he puts a cross, an X, I should say, sorry, an X over being to signify that he wants to move away from being, but that it kind of haunts, uh, it kind of haunts the world at the same time. It, it, its trace is still present. So Heidegger tries to undo speech, at least the privileging of it, or the privileging of a transcendental signified, the idea that there is a a thing that stands exterior to all signs in the form of a kind of real object that that grounds signifiers, that gives them a kind of uh, gravitational point from which they can't stray too far. That's what we mean by transcendental signified. Heidegger believes himself to be, I guess, moving away from that while acknowledging its permanence to some extent, at least within this tradition. So Heidegger acknowledges that there is a kind of haunting of it within uh, a move a move away from uh, the transcendental signified. There's always going to be the maintenance of that idea in, in his work being that, that keeps it grounded. And that puts us here into chapter two, linguistics and grammatology. So now that he's set the, I guess, kind of set the stage for a disturbance of this idea of a privileged signified, the transcendental signified of logocentrism, what does that mean for science? Well, he says that it means that science, we know, was born only in a certain epoch of writing. This epoch was characterized and characterized science by a tacit, axiologically determined relationship between speech and writing. So science only came about when there was that distinction formed between speech and writing. Number three, also characterized as relating, therefore, to phonocentrism, which is which I've already explained is the appreciation of a direct sound relating to a direct uh, letter or, or, you know, phoneme that gives the sense of there being a direct connection to the real world, which is ironic essentially because math, for example, which he says is the exemplary mode of scientificity, moved away from phonetic writing. Math has nothing to do with phonetics at all, but it still attains the status of scientificity which Derrida, you know, and Derrida doesn't present his thoughts in nearly as organized a way as I think he could. But what he was trying to say here is that science is not something that is located within the logos. It is something that comes about with the written word, which is always on the scene. 
that's because for him, and he looks at Egypt as an example, the god or gods in, uh, I guess, ancient mythology were the gods of science, I should say, were also the gods of writing. So there is an attachment there between science and writing. So he's not surprised to say that math, which is the exemplary mode of scientificity, is detached from speech, from the phon phonocentrism. So then, then, then he says the general science of writing was therefore born at, at a certain point of history, uh, which established the distinction between living speech and inscription, or what he'll also call articulation, what he'll also call writing, uh, which is viewed as being dead in relation to living speech. Then accepting all this, writing is the condition for science, not an auxiliary tool of science, it is within it. And then finally, this extends to writing, sorry, it extends to writing's role in establishment of history and historicity. We know nothing of people who did not write. So those aren't his words, this is my kind of paraphrasing him. The idea of history is often associated with a certain speaking. That is the idea of logocentrism, that speech is this privileged thing. But the only way we would actually know about speech, at least its place historically, is by the existence of writing, because we can't look back to oral traditions and know what, what was going on. We only have history of those who write. So we have to acknowledge that there is an, an entire matrix that kind of galvanizes, that kind of gravitates around logocentrism of scientificity, of historicity, that are all related and that are all made possible by writing, the thing that logocentrism subordinates. So what Derrida is trying to show with deconstruction is that the subordinated term in the binary between speech and writing does a lot more. It, it holds a lot more weight than is, it is given credit for. And it is in fact, in a lot of cases, the side of the binary that constitutes the entire thing where you can't know what the binary is unless you have the introduction of this term that is viewed as an introduction as having an origin from the privileged term when it is in fact as Derrida shows the actual originary term so what happens then is if we decide to look at writing scientifically with this thing called grammatology we are not just doing like a kind of semiotic thing or looking at the structures of words. We are looking at the very possibility of science itself in the look at it by looking at the very constitutive component to writing and its regulative capacity in giving meaning or constitutive determinative capacity to give meaning to its uh, antithesis, that is speech. Now, this is obviously distinct from linguistics that is concerned primarily with speech and the structures of speech, not at all with the structures of writing. But linguistics is also anthropomorphic, anth anthropocentric, <laughs> anthropomorphic, anthropocentric in that it centers speech as a human phenomenon, which, of course, Derrida would want to problematize. So in semiotics, we see this appreciation of speech over writing uh, play itself out, where we have Saussure, Ferdinand de Saussure, who talks about the way that speech is uh, what he calls self-present voice, whereas writing is only the representation of that voice. So he, he defines writing as here phonetic script, so that attachment between a written letter, the phoneme, and a, a sound in the world. So it's kind of onomatopoeic. So that's like 
in case you don't know, onomatopoeia is when you have a word that is meant to sound like a, a sound in nature. So like, um, like moo is meant to sound like the sound a cow makes. So it is an onomatopoeia in that it mirrors the world. So that is kind of the kind of script, the kind of writing that Saussure is talking about here and that he is subordinating. He is talking about letters, signifiers that have a kind of attachment to the world. Because otherwise, you know, you have language in like um, ideographic systems like with Mandarin or, you know, Japanese, where you have not phonetic letters that correspond to sounds, but rather you have these symbols that stand in for words or ideas. So Saussure's choosing to focus on phonetic speech or phonetic writing, sorry, versus ideographic writing or ideographic writing is very suspicious and very interesting for Derrida because Derrida's like, well, what is this appreciation of the phonetic alphabet as though it has more of a connection to truth than does other forms of representation? So here we see a privileging not only of speech over writing, but within writing of a certain kind of writing over another by tacitly assuming that phonetic writing is closer to truth than ideographic writing, which of course, of course, is tied to a general appreciation of European knowledge versus you know, Eastern uh, knowledge. So the political project, because there is a political project here that Derrida is trying to do, is not just to call attention to this appreciation of like Western knowledge over Eastern knowledge, which, which plays itself out quite a bit throughout the course of this text and plays itself out in, uh, you know, appreciation of so-called civilized living versus our uh, more archaic forms of living, which are totally arbitrary, at least how Derrida will come to show. But instead, what he's trying to do first and foremost is to demonstrate in his words that all language is first writing. All, anytime I speak, I am doing the same thing as writing. That is representing a, 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 an already abstract thing, you know, kind of mental image in my brain. Or another way we can think about it is that if there is an attachment between the signifier and the signified, as I think I've already adequately showed through, through Derrida, what that means then is that they have, they have an attachment, but that the idea of one being a kind of perversion only demonstrates some degree of perversion within the other. And so Saussure so talks about the way that, and I've already mentioned, words will deform the written speaking where two people can read a word and pronounce it differently, uh, which which would signify, you know, an end to the truth of, of language where Derrida is like, what is a properly spoken word? Like what word doesn't undergo extreme transformations at any point that it is spoken? Like no two people pronounce a word with the, you know, if we had the right tools, the exact same way. That doesn't mean that it's like any less real but it does call attention to the fact that there is a kind of primacy to speaking as though it is, you know, a kind of pure representation of thought. It is itself also subject to uh, mutation. It is subject to transformation. So, of course, as I've already said, Derrida thinks that the first spoken words were in themselves a kind of writing, at least in the way that we imagine within logocentrism writing to be, writing to be the thing that is up 
up for mutations. It, it is susceptible to change. It is removed from thought. The same can be said of speaking, even though linguists want to forget that. So Seward wants to, or maybe, maybe he never knew it, wants to ignore that. So Derrida calls this a kind of arche writing or an arch, arch writing, would be arche, I guess, that precedes logocentrism and actually sets the stage for it. So the originality of speech as writing had to be conjured away. It had to be forgotten. It had to be relegated to the outside so that speech could then stand in at the inside, which is all a big strategy to, you know, uh, to really consolidate this kind of centering of speech to which there is an exteriority in the form of writing. But of course, as Derrida is so clear about, they are not separate. What he wants to demonstrate is that this exteriority is actually found within the interiority and vice versa. So one of the characteristics of Arche writing is its propensity to change, to mutate, to deform, to defer, to differ, to move into new different directions. And so there is no exterior to Arche writing. It is, it is what stands outside of the distinction between presence and non-presence, between writing and speech, between interiority and exteriority. Arche writing is what exists outside of such binaries. It precedes them and exists outside of them. Now, it is the logic of différence. Now, différence is a French play on the word difference and the word defer. So if you differ for some, from something, it means you are just different from it. You are not the same as it. And to defer is to always imply that you don't have a set meaning and that your meaning is always contingent upon something else uh, that, that is always deferred to, which then defers to something else and something else and something else. Now, because this deferral is permanent, it, is, it, it, it proceeds in perpetuity, it extends both past and present. So this deferral is always going to be occurring into the future, and it, is, it always has occurred in the past. So consequently, the, the present is deferred as well, uh, because it's always being deferred. And what we see then is that we are found in a kind of perpetual past. We are found in this perpetual past, this perpetual present, and this perpetual uh, coming, this perpetual future. And then consequently, what we see is the undoing of what Derrida calls a conscious subjectivity within the metaphysics of presence within the history of Western philosophy. And what we see instead is a recognition of spacing as writing, which is, which is trace, the idea of there being these, these spaces, these non-presences between events, between people, between words, between language, uh, which marks the becoming absent and the becoming unconscious of the subject. And that puts us here into uh, chapter three of grammatology as a positive science. So this is kind of a re recap here. Grammatology is essentially founded on the condition of knowing what writing is and how the uh, plurivocity of this concept is formed. Where does writing begin? When does writing begin? So it asks those types of questions. So grammatology is using the logic of there being an origin, a kind of truth, uh, a truth to this birth of this artificial distinction between science, between writing and speech. It is using that logic to identify this point within the history of thought. And 
you know, we trace it to Plato, for example, or Socrates. But of course, we will never find this origin. And we think we think of this um, regulatively, not constitutively. And what I, what I mean by that is that we can't ever perceive that origin, but that doesn't necessarily mean that it's not there per se in that uh, it, it has certain effects. And it as it has this had this ripple effect throughout the course of Western philosophy. And that covers the first half here and puts us into uh, part two, which I'll start next week. And so, yeah, if you listen this far, I hope I was as clear as I could be. Uh, this text is all very difficult. Um, but if I, you know, omitted anything or if I got anything wrong, I'd love to hear about it. Um, and yeah, catch you next time.